Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. My guest today is Paul Fryant. He is the head of risk premier at K2 Advisors, which is a Franklin Templeton company. In this episode, we discuss risk premier and tail hedging. We discuss why some investors have found that risk premium strategies have not performed as they would have expected, particularly in cases where they've failed to be uncorrelated right when investors needed them most. We then cover the intersection of systematic construction and the discretionary overlays to harvest and rebalance the premium, specifically in times of volatility spikes and associated liquidity challenges that we saw in Q1 of 2020. Finally, we conclude the conversation with a discussion on tail hedging and the different options available and the challenges investors face as they seek to implement these strategies but keep costs to a minimum. I hope you enjoy the conversation. I think the first place to start the conversation is really around maybe this this winter or cold winter that we've seen alongside the, the risk premium uh, factors. They've had some challenges. Some have done very well. Some have done not so well. How do you explain maybe the discrepancy or the dispersion in results um, in, in across that space? Thanks, Alex. Um, so definitely quite a bit of dispersion in performance between different managers of risk premium. Uh, we do know that the benchmark uh, of risk premium asset managers is down about 15, 16% in a year, uh, which is obviously a uh, significant underperformance. But there are some managers who are up on a year and some managers who are down considerably more than that number. And substantial uh, differences in performance probably come from a composition of the of their portfolios, because as uh, undoubtedly you and your listeners know, uh, risk premium is not a mon- is not homogenous. Uh, effectively, it's, it's not a homogenous homogenous asset class. It's a multi-asset vehicle, and it crosses multiple sources of returns. And depending on which source of returns, i.e., which risk premium strategy one embeds in a portfolio, you know, the portfolio may have very different returns. So, for example, uh, if one embeds equity value, so the, the which which is a which is a premium which had a pretty pronounced underperformance this year, and frankly, over the past uh, nine years then performance would be brought down significantly. Uh, on the other hand, some other sources of returns like FX value, uh, as opposed to equity value, have done quite well. So if one uh, were to not include equity value, but to include FX value, performance would be very different. And of course, uh, second, secondly to that, uh, it all depends on how one constructs uh, a given strategy to extract the source of premium. And this construction can be very different. Now, for example, the aforementioned FX value can be done on a universe of G10 currencies or on a, on a universe of emerging market and G10 currencies with very different outcomes, how frequently it's rebalanced, how much it's levered, and so on. And, 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 and as you can tell from that uh, short preview, uh, results can be quite significantly different. And there is one more aspect that I wanted to emphasize that probably resulted in a significant year-to-date performance between risk premium managers. Most risk premium funds are systematically managed funds. And uh, what that means is that is a, th- there is very little discretion 
as to how risk is assessed in a portfolio of systematic strategies. Typically, uh, the best proxy for risk is some kind of version of volatility, realized volatility. At least that's what uh, most systematic managers are using, including risk premium managers. And uh, depending on whether or not one rebalances portfolio on a daily, weekly, monthly basis, based on perception whether or not risk has gone up or not, based on observation of realized volatility, experience would be very different. So what, what I mean by that is that when we started the year in early January, realized volatility was running around 10% per year, which is right around the long-term average. Uh, and I'm talking about right now volatility of equities so that everyone can relate. Uh, so volatility of equities was running about 10% a year. And then sometime close to the end of February, uh, this volatility began to pick up. And then it finally realized volatility uh, jumped about eightfold to about 80% and even a little bit higher by middle of March. So those funds which do rebalance their positions based on assessment of that risk would have delivered their positions, would have delivered the, the, the risk in their portfolio eightfold right in the begin, right by the end of March as markets began to recover. And if they delivered, the, they wouldn't be able to participate in the recovery. While other funds, which may have philosophically different approach to risk management in portfolio management, would have been able to participate better in portfolio recovery. And that would have resulted in a very significant dispersion of returns. You, you've given me many, many places to, to unpack there. Um, the piece okay. that you just discussed there around leverage is, is really fascinating because it's actually exacerbated um, the differential and dispersion between, between the funds because obviously the way that many of the institutional investors work, they've got particular targets of volatility across their fund and also across different managers. And as you said, they've had to you know, reduce or, or um, pull back the amount of leverage in, in the fund at the, at the same time when markets are going bad. Had such a fast reversal uh, and markets recovered very quickly, they've been hurt on both sides. So you know, it's, it's a really challenging piece. And you know, the thing that, that strikes me in, in institutional investor land is that they need to manage to risk. And so because they're managing to risk almost sometimes very strictly to, to a level, uh, it, it then exacerbates this problem. And so how do you then talk to investors around being a little bit more flexible around the amount of risk that they take? Because I see the other problem where if you're just managing to a particular level of vol and vol's low, then you, you, you want to boost it up. Um, if vol's high, then you, you're trying to, to reduce it. But you know, we've seen a lot of volatility over the last few months, last few years, where you've got these big spikes over different periods. So it becomes very hard for them to manage that. There's a lot of costs associated with that because you're constantly rebalancing. You know, how, how do you then talk investors through what to expect in these type of strategies? So that's, uh, that's, that's a good point. So a couple, couple of ways to, to talk about that. In general, risk premium strategies or risk premium funds, just like all, or I shouldn't say all, just like majority of system managed funds, tend to build their portfolios based on observed experiences historically. And uh, many of those experiences, of course, are colored by the by the by what took place in 2008, 2009. And uh, uh, just to go back 12 years, what happened in 2008, 2009, and actually from the end of 2007, we had uh, a very long period of market uh, of risk-off environment. 
Effectively, it started out at the end of October 2007 and did not finish up until about March, debatable, but about March 2009, which is what, about a year and a half. So based on that experience, the, the funds which uh, build out the risk assessment methodologies, they, they can observe that if they do deliver their portfolio uh, based on uh, spike in volatility, which is often happens in the very beginning of a drawdown, uh, they will be able to avoid a lot of pain and a lot of losses later on, especially if it's gonna last for a long period of time. Now, some of your investors who've been, who've been around the market for quite a bit uh, may also recall that the, the recession of dot-com recession from 2000 to 2002 also lasted <clears throat> for nearly two years. And their and equity markets were in a drawdown for almost two years until October 2002 from March 2000. Uh, so once again, a very long period of time. Uh, so based on those experiences, it uh, strategies which are trained effectively on uh, past recessions would find it reasonable to deliver quickly as soon as they see drawdown, as soon as, see, as soon as they see volatility, volatility pick up because there is a, a non-zero chance that uh, this may last significantly longer and they would be able to avoid pain for a long period of time. Uh, there, there is a bit of a catch obviously with, um, with uh, this approach uh, because as you mentioned, more and more funds are now managed uh, passively and systematically where risk is assessed in exactly that way. So, uh, which kind of becomes a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy is that so many of them are trying to, so, so, so many assets are trying to deliver, trying to get out of the market uh, as soon as volatility begins to pick up, that a considerable portion of them do manage to get out within the first few days to few weeks, which effectively brings market significantly, brings a lot of pressure to the market over a short period of time. And then pressure is alleviated. And of course, it was further compounded by what happened in March 2020, uh, when when central banks came with force and fiscal authorities came with enormous force and managed to restore uh, liquidity and and credibility to the market with all with the consequences we all know about. You know, one of the things you've you've touched on there, where people are moving in all together and and all out at the same time. You know, it seems to describe almost a, a type of crowding effect, um, and alongside that is liquidity challenges of the ability to to rebalance. I guess one of the questions I would like to to ask you is, you know, these these types of risk premium strategies have become very popular, and I guess with popularity, you know, you need to have that diverse market participant grouping for the ability to have rebalancing and provide the liquidity. You know, how do you think about it when you're looking at rebalancing the portfolio? vis-a-vis the liquidity or the amount of people that are in the same trade, because ultimately you need to be able to trade as well. So how do you take that into consideration? So when we look at illiquidity, there are two things that, that is important to, to, to highlight. Uh, risk premium funds tend to trade some of the most liquid instruments in the world. Avoiding a liquidity trap is probably the best way of managing liquidity risk. And to that extent, when we try to build risk premium portfolios, our primary goal is to minimize exposure to anything that can become a liquid. So to that extent, we do not really, we avoid emerging market currencies, which can become a liquid. Uh, we avoid single stock strategies to the extent that we can and try to focus on uh, the most liquid portion of the um, global asset management community. And that would be G10 currencies. It would be um, a 10-year treasury, uh, futures, short-term money markets, 
uh, S&P futures as opposed to single stocks uh, on a small cap, particularly or even large cap. Yeah, so so that's so that's our approach. Having said that, in general, there is a there are, there are various tools that uh, risk premium funds and other funds obviously have in managing in managing that risk. One of them would be to pace out uh, rebalancing of the portfolio uh, over multiple days. Uh, uh, the drawback of that, obviously, is that if uh, risk signal uh, signals are, are flashing that risk is elevated and you need to get out of your positions, you space out your rebalancing, you space out your deleverage, and you might actually uh, uh, incur a bigger loss. But, uh, of course, the flip side of that is that you are not simply dropping your, your, your position into a market where there is no buyer. Uh, we saw some of it, obviously, in February and March 2020. The first time we saw it was the last trading, last trading day of February, uh, where, where basically movements in between different asset classes did not make any sense. We saw uh, yields, treasury yields drop and gold drop at the same time, which is was a clear indication because typically gold will depreciate whenever yield is yield is declining and it's becoming more more valuable in uh, and, and multiple other moves. And it was clear to us that many funds were facing margin calls, meaning you have to satisfy uh, a request from a leverage provider, else your entire position will be called, uh, and, and people were selling whatever they could. And then it basically escalated uh, by into the middle of March. What what is also important to highlight, I think, about March specifically, March 2020, is that it was not so much an equity crisis or even a risk premium crisis. If I were to highlight it in one word, it was or two words, it was illiquidity crisis. And what happened is effectively uh, goes to the heart of your question: What do you do when there is nobody on the other side, when everyone must sell? because of either redemption request or a margin call, or just simply uh, the the risk that they are now delivering in their portfolio is far higher than the risk uh, that they promised to deliver to their clients. Uh, and that's what we were facing. Uh, and, and unfortunately, those those funds which were forced to deliver based due, due, to, due to their mandates or due to margin calls uh, were basically selling where nobody would be buying. And that's, by the way, one of the reasons why we have central banks uh, to come in, be buyer for last resort, and to restore liquidity and to restore credibility to the market, which is what they, they did so successfully in March. To answer your question, when you manage uh, funds systematically, uh, I think the best way to avoid such liquidity traps is either to, to the extent possible to change your mandate in such a way that uh, you have some flexibility and not having to sell into basically when there is no buyers. And unfortunately, many of the systematically managed funds uh, do not have that flexibility. It's probably worthwhile also to mention uh, the other cohort of systematic strategies, not just risk premium, you know, specifically what we call wall targeters and risk parity funds and some of the CTAs or trend following funds, many of whom manage their risk systematically by looking at correlation, by looking at, at realized volatility of returns. And what we noticed uh, that they were the ones, they were at the forefront of selling pressure throughout the beginning of March. Uh, we saw about $400 billion of risk and equities were being dumped within a week and a half from, from that cohort in the beginning of March. That's 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 a lot of forced selling. And and we saw, and, and, and the way it typically happens, uh, just like we talked about it a little bit earlier, you know, as realized volatility is low, these funds tend to lever up to increase their positions to deliver a certain level of risk that they promised the clients, 
and as then as volatility begins to, to, to increase, they have to deliver. And these funds tend to deliver by using S&P futures or sometimes even VIX futures to get uh, to get levered result. And, and, and they are the ones who typically drive the markets early on in a, in a sell-off, early on lower. And those are observable uh, and sometimes almost, I don't want to say predictable, but uh, to a certain extent predictable for several days, those type of impact, especially with starting from highly levered positions. And we saw the same impact, not just in March 2020, we saw the same situation happen in August 2015, and in October 2018, and in February 2018, if you recall when, when volatility spiked a lot. So, so this was yet another testament to how such systematic strategies behave. And it, by now, I think this is fairly well known and should be expected uh, by, by market participants alike, because as they manage quite considerable amount of assets and their reaction function to increase in risk is fairly well known and understood. So there's two parts that come in, in my thinking when I, when you talk about this. One is that you need almost like a discretionary overlay for some of these uh, system, very highly systematic processes to make sure that you don't just get get sucked out in, in the tide. Um, and the other one is, you know, given that there are so many people running with these systematic strategies uh, where they all need to move at the same level or same type, is that the reason why we saw many of these risk premium strategies fail in the sense that they weren't as uncorrelated as we expected because there was this full backdraft that they all ended up moving together at the same time? So in part, I do not want to um, unnecessarily overemphasize that it was just crowd and just a lot of, a lot of funds are chasing the same ideas. It's very difficult to crowd out a trend and interest rates. Uh, because the source of returns, the idea behind why trend should work is, is the behavioral, effectively, the greed and fear. And, it's, uh, and, and what happened in March 2020 only validates that the source of returns is alive and well. The reason why I think so many strategies suffered in March 2020 was effectively liquidity. Because illiquidity blew out those, effectively widened out any of those premiums. In part, it was because people were selling whatever they could sell. And what they could sell typically would be the most liquid instruments. And liquid instruments, just nobody, would, few people were buying them even before. And, but, in, but in March 2020 environment, liquid instruments were just, and ended up just sitting on, a, on, on, on banks' balance sheets or in, in portfolios. So effectively, illiquidity forced drawdowns and buying in and out of premium wherever it could be done. That does not necessarily negate validity of some of those risk premium strategies, A, and B, it does not necessarily mean that a lot of people were overcrowded in those positions. They may have been overcrowded elsewhere, but because elsewhere could not be moved, could not be sold, what they were selling is the liquid part, which is once again, uh, uh, which is where risk premium operates. It, it may be a little bit nuanced, but it's important. But does that then come back to the whole idea around construction and being very careful of how you construct to make sure that you're not um, stuck in that liquidity trap? True. And I, I think in part, this is one of the reasons why we, we and, and how we extract risk premium, we try to avoid, we, we try to focus on some of the most liquid instruments where, um, to be honest, if euro versus dollar, if that pair is not trading, then we have much bigger issues, right? So that's that's kind of the area where we try to, we, 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 we effectively more biased in operating with. And that's one of the reasons why we avoid 
uh, single stock type of strategies where liquidity is much more likely to take place. I would say that some of the crowdedness may be, may be percolating in single stock space, not so much because of risk premier, but because of the smart beta complex, which is a lot bigger effectively than a risk premier complex. It's long only, it's uh, the total AUM and smart beta is north of a trillion dollars. You know, the last time I saw that figure, I think it's 1.1 trillion. You know, so when and if those strategies begin to sell off, they may widen out some of the uh, some of the uh, premium in single stock strategies. And maybe even that's one of the reasons why equity value may have also experienced some of the drawdowns in 2008. Once again, the crowding was probably not the primary reason for underperformance of risk premium strategies. In, in March 2020, or in fact, in, in 2020. There is many other reasons, including noise, including, for example, if I were to think about why equity value had such a difficult uh, time before uh, performing uh, in 2020, even earlier, in part, the blame may even lie with central banks. Why am I saying with central banks? It's not that I'm blaming central banks, not at all. They're trying to help uh, economy, and um, uh, but, but, but as a, as a becoming bigger, bigger portion uh, bigger, bigger player in the in the uh, global markets, they distort uh, uh, certain free functioning mechanism of the of the market. So in this particular case, uh, they keep interest rates low, and keeping interest rates low tends to depress uh, a big cohort of stocks which are typically identified as value stocks, and that would be financials. Right, financials tend to benefit from high interest rates, or more specifically, from from a steeper yield curve. The steeper the yield curve, you know, the more likely they are to perform because that's how they make money: mortgages minus deposits. And as central banks uh, were busy flattening yield curves uh, in order to to promote economic uh, recovery, uh, they they basically depressed expected uh, performance in. Um, in, in a big cohort of uh, value stocks. So that's another reason why value underperformed. Once again, it has nothing to do with crowding. It's just there is noise in the market. There are different participants in the market, which may temporarily, and this temporarily may mean a very long period of time, unfortunately, but temporarily distort uh, distorts certain premium. Mm-hmm. Another good good example of actually the distortion uh, could be uh, one of the strategies we had. We, we, we focus, one of our strategies uh, focuses on uh, focused in March on compression premium between high yield and investment grade. And that premium basically uh, tries to capitalize on restrictions uh, that many pension funds and other asset managers have in what portion of the credit they can uh, they can invest in. So for example, many cannot invest in a sub-investment grade, which comparatively speaking per unit of risk make high yield under high yield bonds, high yield credit be underpriced and investment grade uh, uh, bonds to be over a long period of time overpriced. So playing a compression uh, trade between the two tends to uh, tends to generate attractive returns over entire economic cycle. But what happened again in March 2020, uh, some of your listeners may recall that Central Bank came out and said in, on March 23rd, if I'm not mistaken, March 23rd, that they will backstop credit by investment grade of investment grade corporations, but not of high yield corporations, which effectively blew out that spread uh, by several standard deviations in a single day. Once again, premier that was that was simply noise. That crowding was a big noise impact on the on the premier, and uh, uh, it was one of our single worst days in our fund. 
Luckily, about a week later, central bank came out and said, we're also going to backstop uh, high yield credit as well, because all they're trying to do is effectively promote functioning of credit in the economy, not not necessarily separate the world into haves and have-nots, and, and that compression trade kind of came back. But but that's just another emphasis, another, uh, another example of material uh, noise that risk premier uh, strategies just have to take uh, effectively and, and deal with the loss. And the only way to deal with that loss is either to take it on the nose and then hopefully diversify, have a smaller small allocation to strategy, smaller weight, and diversify across other uh, uncorrelated uh, sources of returns. You've raised an interesting uh, issue there, which is the correlation between strategies and to be diversified. You know, I mm-hmm. guess then how do you then think about it for investors to address this correlation risk that that they see, given that traditionally institutional investors aren't really keen to pay for any sort of put protection? I know many have been looking at trend following as a way to be a hedge. You know, how do you then explain the correlation risk that you see across maybe some of these risk premiums? Um, and then how can they potentially address um, these tail style risks that you're describing? Uh, even though there may be noise, but that they are still still can be large multi sigma events. Yeah, that's a very good question, Alex. So correlation is just a statistical artifact. Um, over long period, so correlation should only confirm uh, the fundamental hypothesis of whether or not source of returns are related to each other. And in order to appreciate what sources of returns have been uh, are being taken into account in the or, or, or being uh, or that are in a portfolio. One has to go down to to the to the some of the very basic details. Effectively, when we are trying to build a portfolio, we are not necessarily so we do not start with looking at different strategies or just get a bunch of backtests and try to 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 see if, if correlations between between them is 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 low. That's 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 close to the last step in our process. The, uh, I believe the philosophically, the first step should be in, in assessing what causes, what is the cause of returns, fundamentally speaking. So for trend following, uh, it, it could be greed and fear. For credit strategies that I described before, it could be structural inability of a large cohort of, uh, of investors to allocate money to a particular uh, uh, part of credit markets. Um, in something like uh, equity uh, equity low beta strategy, uh, it could be a combination of several um, uh, reasons, like uh, leverage avoidance within um, within uh, within individual stocks, or even uh, lottery uh, effect of the some of the people, some of the investors who chase the next Amazon and try to overlook the next. Uh, uh, kind of utility or Pepsi Cola, Coca Cola, which tend to perform very well over a long period of time. So, so those are the reasons why different risk premium strategies should 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 work and should react and should generate excess returns over a long period of time. And once you identify those reasons, uh, uh, one should just build this as simple as possible of a of a construct of an algorithm to to uh, extract or to kind of zero in zero in on some of the those sources of returns. And once we build those backtests, uh, which are trying to extract them as purely as possible, we try to see whether the results are actually uncorrelated or not. And if they're uncorrelated, that's just validation that, in fact, they, uh, they are unrelated to us. 
Now, over a long period of time, this correlation is not static. Correlation moves, uh, it goes up and down over a long period of time. And, uh, and in certain events, like in March 2020, unfortunately, some of the correlations may, may, uh, may unfortunately uh, go up in a, in a positive direction, in which case portfolio begins to act, uh, not necessarily like monolithic, like a one single asset class, but, but it begins to act in a, in a, in a less correlated manner. Um, so what's important to do in those cases is just to kind of keep in mind that uh, the, the, the periods of liquidity of such enormous pain tend to be very short-lived and not to overreact to portfolio, not to start uh, scaling down portfolio based on just inability to take uh, to take uh, to take on volatility. That's one thing. The second thing is, I, and I just wanted to kind of highlight that for so that that's a, that's a useful approach, I believe, for uh, strategies which are market neutral, of which risk premium strategies, of course, are. For many other uh, market participants, especially for those who run uh, very equity heavy, long only type of portfolios, um, it's uh, probably valuable to consider adding a tail hedge strategy uh, to minimize or to actually work as a, as a balancing out uh, a force uh, in their portfolios so that when when valuation portfolios begin to decline fairly dramatically, there is something that actually appreciates and makes the pain a lot less, a lot more tolerable. Maybe, you know, another question around the, these, these tail hedges. Um, are there a way to actually build tail hedges in that are cost effective? Um, because I said, as, as I think I mentioned at the start there that these, these tail hedges can be quite expensive. Um, and so how do you then think about building uh, an effective and efficient um, tail hedge that you, know, you can keep on to try and address some of these very large movements? Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, it's, uh, I, I, I recall a number of different conversations we had with clients uh, on tail hedging. It's, 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 it's interesting because virtually, virtually every client appreciates the idea of a tail hedge. Virtually everybody wants one. Uh, the, and, and, and ideally what they would like to, to have is something that would be A, uh, very reliable, meaning work 100% of the time. It should ideally once again to be uh, very reactive, meaning as equities decline by 5%, tail hedge hopefully appreciates 15%, that's reactivity, uh, liquid scalable and also monetizable. Right, it's it's uh, uh, they would like to to have a tail hedge that would generate positive returns and then uh, realize them, especially if, if markets turn around. And uh, and of course, when no, no such ideal strategy exists, if we, were to, we have multiple strategies and multiple tools because tail hedge industry existed for a long period of time, so we have tools to address every one of those concerns. Uh, unfortunately, if we were to put them together, it will become so cost prohibitive that it will make no sense to add a tail hedge strategy. In fact, uh, just if I were to kind of give a couple examples, um, uh, some of the most, some of the simplest tail hedging strategies would be to look at, at the money put on, let's say, S&P 500, right? And at the money put for S&P 500, the cost of that at the money put right now to protect entire portfolio for a year is worth about 12%. That's more than the average return on S&P 500 per annum, historically. So effectively, if you were to buy the money put 
12 months out to protect your portfolio, you would expect to have a negative return for the year on average. But it doesn't start, doesn't end here. This 12 months that the money put, if you just buy and hold for a year, it, it's not an ideal protection. Not only it's not very reactive, but also if equities appreciate at the beginning of the year, and then they start selling off at the end of the year, that at the money hedge, which has not been restruck, will be still far out of the money, and therefore it will not really be active. It will not add any protection later on in the year. And uh, so, so clearly what, what, uh, what the kind of solution that clients would want is something that is a bit more dynamic. It's some kind of put protection that is not necessarily that long, but maybe a lot shorter lived rebalances. So, so it's to keep up with the strike, to keep up, to keep up with the market. And so that's and that's a reasonable idea. So if we were to consider right now in a current environment to buy one month's put, so those one month's puts uh, as a money put, they cost about 2.2% per, per for each month. So if you extrapolate the total cost of those at the money puts over the course of a year, the, the cost approaches roughly 30%, which is a staggering amount of money once you compound it. And, and obviously, so cost prohibitive that, that uh, most clients would never consider doing this unless, of course, they believe they can time, which is completely different, I think, type of conversation. So yes, uh, the, the compromises should be made. And the compromises should include and, and compromises include whatever one reactivity, whatever one re reliability, whatever one uh, uh, self monetization, like in short term puts versus long term puts, and so on and so forth. And unfortunately, most of those compromises uh, tend to shave off fairly insignificant amount of cost until we get down to reliability, right? Really, it's the compromising on reliability, compromising on something that does not have to work 100% of the time. That's where real cost savings come in. And it's important, I think, for many, for many investors to appreciate that that compromise on reliability uh, is there for a reason. No free lunch. Um, uh, as soon as you compromise on reliability, yes, you do save a lot on costs, as opposed to paying 12% for the money put. You may choose uh, an intraday momentum strategy or an effects value strategy, or even a trend strategy, which uh, which, which has a, a correlation with equities of close to zero, which basically suggests that over a long period of time, it may or may not work in, in uh, exactly when you need it. So there is almost 50-50 chance whether it would work. So that's the risk one takes. Uh, in, in, in clients, in clients and investors need to appreciate uh, where, where this is coming from. So, <clears throat> The, the compromises that are being made specifically with trend following for, with effects value or intraday momentum or even multiple other kind of zero cost type of solutions is that they would work if certain set of circumstances happens to take place again. So again, we're coming back to that uh, discussion we had about late 2007, early 2008, when equities began it's gradual sell-off at the end of 2007, and trend-following strategies had a chance to invert from being low equities to being short equities before real drawdowns began in equities. So they, be, they, they were able to offer significant protection starting from some of 2008 all the way through March 2009, and, and they worked very well. The same, unfortunately, did not take place in March 2020 because most 
most trend following, trend following momentum uh, type of uh, equity strategies came in into late February being loan equities and being levered up loan equities because volatility was fairly low. They came in levered up loan equities, uh, loan equity positions, loan equity futures, volatility went up, drawdown began, they began to sell into the drawdown uh, and, and they were almost done with that selling by the end of the first week of March. And then they participated a little bit uh, because volatility was very high. They participated a little bit in a continued drawdown over the next uh, week and a half while Delta hedgers were continuing to, to drive equity markets lower. And, and then of course, we know what happened. Central banks came in, uh, markets reversed, and, and uh, uh, the, 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 the trend followers were caught being short futures and once again contributed to losses rather than being, uh, being, uh, uh, being tail hedgers. Mm -hmm. So what's important to understand again is that compromises are not free. Uh, compromises work on the certain, uh, have a certain path dependency and um, and uh, as long as uh, investors are comfortable with taking that risk, then then they are acceptable uh, in their portfolios. And of course, there are many other different tools that we have in in uh, uh, in our repertoire, including put spreads, which are very good for very specific type of uh, uh, drawdowns, like slow defensive drip counter drawdowns. And on the other hand, we also have put ratios type of strategies uh, or VIX call spread type of strategies, which have a lot of reactivity and can protect against a very deep uh, drawdown and may, may actually not cause that much. But once again, there will be certain other compromises to be made. So many tools, many possible approaches, uh, many ways to do, to, to, to uh, uh, defend uh, one's portfolios, but no free lunch. Well, I think that's a fantastic place to leave the conversation that there's no free lunch. It's a very, very much a, uh, you need to understand the market you're investing in, understand the tools and products that you're also purchasing uh, as part of um, your portfolio. So thank you very much for your time today, uh, Paul. Thank you, Alex. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.